online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, more and more interest from young students about a career in agriculture. I know I'm involved in the school level of things as well and we're certainly seeing more people interested in agricultural subjects within school and there's a big effort to to improve that so that as we have people early on engaged, they then stay uh, within the industry. And the chickens who have the freedom to roam. Once they come out of the brooder, they're on grass their entire life. We basically house them in these um, sheds just to give them protection from the predators, mainly hawks and wild dogs. But as you can see, there's no floor in the shed, so they've got access to the grass and the bugs, and I think they like to scratch, and they have a, a wonderful life. Nothing like a happy chook. And also the students keen to learn more about agriculture coming up today. G'day, Tony, with you on this wintry-like Thursday, and despite the conditions, it is the start of the raspberry harvest at one big farm in the south. We shall take you there in just a moment. And if you are a fan of almonds, good news, a record Australian almond harvest. That story coming up as well. Plus a check on that weather and your thoughts on any issue, 0438 922936, 0438 is that number and a great day yesterday with all those fabulous people donating to the ABC Giving Tree. And I note that the ABC Giving Tree appeal now sits at $147,036. So less than $3,000 away from the target of 150000 be nice to uh, announce the target's been reached by the end of the country. Uh, maybe stretching it a bit, but you never know. Anyway, if you feel like donating the ABC Giving Tree Appeal, online at ABC Giving Tree. Now, you're looking forward to your Christmas raspberries. Well, after a cool November, the season has just started. Should be in full swing by the week before Christmas. This season, there's more backpackers around to help pick the fruit. Fiona Breen caught up with Richard Clark from Westaway Raspberry Farm in the Derwent Valley to find out more. Everything's very slow this year. It's been a terribly cold uh, November. In fact, this morning there was actually frost on my on my car windscreen at 5.30, so it was two degrees at the farm. And, my goodness, um, in December. In December. So so people don't like um, two-degree mornings and raspberries and berries don't either. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a very late season. But we did start our, our first little pick of raspberries today um, and it's really nice to have some, some pickers in the field and, and some, some raspberries coming into the, into the fr- fridges. So How are the raspberries looking? We're luckily uh, a bit inland, so we haven't been affected by the, the really unfortunate amounts of rain that have been hitting the, the east coast of Tasmania and, and southeast Australia. But the wind uh, a week or two ago, those 100-kilometre-hour gusts that brought down a lot of trees, have done a little bit of rubbage on the fruit. So there's a, there's a bit of wind marks. We grow all our fruit outside. But no, the, the, the fruit started to get some size in it, some flavour and, and some colour. How many hectares, roughly, do you have up your way? Blackcurrants and raspberries are our main crops. Uh, we've also got a, a lot of different smaller varieties for pick-your-own, but about 35 hectares of, of, of berries in total um, at New Norfolk and our main farm at Westerway. And you need a few pickers for that? We, we do. I mean, luckily, we've got, um, we've got the, the three, three raspberry harvesters and one blackcurrant machine that does a, a, a large amount of the picking. But we have up to about 100 workers in the week before Christmas. There's a, a really strong demand for, 
for berries for people's Christmas tables in the week before Christmas, and we we yeah we have a hundred people. It, You're going to get those hundred this year. We we managed to get everything picked last year, but it was very scrappy, and we big borrowed and steer stole to try and find people to 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 do the picking um, last year especially. But this year, this year there's um, a, a lot of wonderful locals that are, are coming back. There's um, backpackers are returning to the state, just like travellers are, are returning to the state. No, we're, we're, we're much more confident about um, about this year and the picking. So you've noticed that backpackers are getting in touch more. Yes, yes, I have. Um, I mean, we, we, we've we've still got flyers on the walls of some hostels in Sydney and around Hobart from last year that we put up uh, out of desperation. Um, and, and people are calling us and contacting us through the Harvest Trail as well. Um, so, you know, we, we've probably had, you know, 30, 40 uh, backpackers who have contacted us, which is a, a far cry from I think we had six last year. Uh, so it makes us feel a lot more confident about bringing in the crop this year. And this year you've got the, the new horticulture wage, the minimum wage. How are you uh, placed to get that moving and, and how will you work with that? Yep. So that, that 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 that's a challenge, um, and it's it's been brought in obviously to protect protect workers because they're, you know, to to make sure there's a minimum amount that they can be paid. What what it'll do for our farm, we'll, we'll pay an hourly wage and we'll pay bonuses for people who pick faster than that than a, than a minimum standard. But unfortunately, what the what the decision of the Fair Work Commission has done is it essentially has protected some unproductive workers out of a job. Unfortunately, there will be people who um, who are, are quite happy for whatever reason to, to come and pick at their speed or have been happy to come and pick at their speed in the past. And unfortunately, this year, um, we have to be a hard-nosed business like other businesses. And in the past, we've allowed people to pick at their own speed. But there, there is an expectation that, that people need to pick at a certain level of productivity so some of some people have been protected out of a job, unfortunately. Richard, what sort of groups do you think that excludes? I'd say maybe maybe it's people who haven't done a lot of horticultural work in the past, or people who are re-entering the the labour market and haven't done a, a lot of work. I suppose picking picking fruit um, is is a physical job. There'll be some you know grey nomads, I suppose, who maybe haven't you know who would like to try raspberry picking or berry picking. And, you know, and, and we'll give people a try still, but unless they meet a certain standard in a certain amount of time, it will be really difficult to warrant paying a, a lesser productive person, you know, and, and, and those people, we, we will just have to make hard, hard-nosed decisions like other businesses make um, on, on a productivity basis. So you'll have to keep a close eye on things to, to yep. check that out. Do you have any sort yep. of way, new ways of doing that? No, no, no. We'll we'll just have we'll have more supervisors, unfortunately. So we'll we'll have to have more supervisors in the field. It's 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 hard to monitor, I suppose, pickers when the the the, the rows are six foot tall. And um, but we will have more supervisors. We will be monitoring, you know, throughout the day and at the end of the day. Um, but we'll be using our old systems and just being a little bit closer and and monitoring more regularly, I suppose, how how people are going. It will be interesting to see how everything goes this season because it's quite a change and a bit more paperwork for you guys. It is more paperwork, more supervision, um, more costs um, more broadly, and it is disappointing that there are people who are willing to work and are keen to do work but maybe just not particularly well suited to being super productive people and, and maybe don't want to be watched and, and, and monitored as closely, but unfortunately the, the rules 
do mean that we do have to be very careful to, to make sure that productivity levels are, are met and reached, I suppose. And what about the price of raspberries? Will that go up? I suppose it, it, it's a market, so it does depend on you know, how much supply and demand is in the market. But we're, we're not going to be the only farm that's facing higher costs. And you know, fertilisers and fuel and um, labour have all gone up, and that's something that farms you know, don't like to um, absorb. And, and just like any other business, I suppose, there, there are cost pressures and it just depends, I suppose, on the supply-demand dynamics as it does with lettuces and cucumbers and all other types of fruit, unfortunately. Richard Clark from the Westaway Raspberry Farm talking there to Fiona Breen about the new minimum wage in horticulture and how they'll keep an eye on picking rates. Somebody's watching you as you pick uh, as the new raspberry picking season gets underway. That's what I like about radio. You can hear me, but you can't see me. <laughs> You can't watch. Uh, the Australian almond industry's harvest results are finally in for 2021-22, and it's a new record. That's despite La Nina weather causing crop losses and delays in processing. Eliza Burlage has this report. The Almond Board of Australia's latest insights report reveals the saleable production for 2022 is forecast to be about 143,805 tonnes. That's up from the 2021 total of 124,499 tonnes. Chief Executive Tim Jackson says growers managed the record yield despite challenges. We were expecting more damage due to the wet weather, but um, the reports we were receiving from our markers and process suggest that, um, it, uh, that they've been able to salvage the crop in a much better way than they thought earlier in the year. So right across the region, in the Riverina probably had the most challenging year of all time with unprecedented rainfall since the start of the year. So it's a, a tribute to their ability to keep their product dry and for the processors to be able to process that product. And in terms of the breakdown of, of types of almonds that were harvested this year, what did that look like? So there was a reduced volume of inshell this year due to the wet weather. Wet weather and inshore does not go together. So from a quality point of view, it just makes a lot of sense to, to crack that out. So normally we have very strong sales into India, but those sales were down due to the fact that they had nearly, well, 100% um, inshore related product, but we just didn't have the availability of that stock this year. You mentioned the Riverina as being one of the regions that had the most difficulty with wet weather and harvesting almonds for this year. What were some of the sort of um, percentages of crop losses across the different regions? Uh, still calculating those at this stage, simply because things have just taken a lot longer to process due to the wet weather and process of drying. We won't know those numbers until we get through the entire crop at the end of the season in February. But in all indications from our processes is that they've been able to salvage something much better than we thought was possible when we're in the midst of the wet winter. However, he says the La Nina weather did affect the types of almonds harvested. So there was a reduced volume of inshell this year due to the wet weather. Wet weather and inshell does not go together. So from a quality point of view, it just makes a lot of sense to, to crack that out. Marketers and processors also managed to increase sales by 13% on the previous year, with 43% shipment growth to India, 36% growth to China and 21% to the Middle East. Mr Jackson again. Normally we have very strong sales into India, but those sales were down due to the fact that they had nearly, well, 100% um, inshell related product, but we just didn't have the availability of that stock this year. The almond industry is continuing to grow, with an additional 680 hectares reported in the 2021-22 to period, 
total industry plantings also expanded to 60,463 hectares, with 75,000 hectares predicted by the end of the decade. Of the 17.7 million almond trees planted in Australia, 14% are not yet bearing and 38% aren't fully mature. Effective varroa mite on the industry will be revealed in next season's yield data. We're expecting a bumper crop next year, but given the issues we had with pollination with the shortage of bees, the ongoing wet weather and now the, and, and the flooding and heavy rains throughout a number of our areas, we're expecting the crop to be down, well down on its uh, original potential. That's Armand Board of Australia's Chair Jim Jackson speaking to Eliza Berlage about the Australian almond industry's harvest results, a new record for the 21-22 harvest season. Now continuing with harvest and more than 100 ex-Defence Force personnel are assisting with the grain harvest across the country this season. Operation Grain Harvest Assist started last year when the pandemic prevented overseas workers travelling to Australia. Deniliquin's Mark Rogan was part of the Army's Royal Australian Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. This is his second year assisting with the grain harvest in Victoria. Last time I was out at Japarit uh, for a family farm out there and I was uh, chaser bin driving. And uh, to me that was a very good apprenticeship. I, I learned how grain flowed and how it moves and the speed and the efficiency that uh, you had to operate at as a chaser bin driver when you're running two headers and only you and large paddocks. What are you doing this time around? I'm driving the semi-trailer, heavy combination. Uh, I got my licence probably 18 months ago under Project Verto, which I believe was a Commonwealth system, to get over 60s trade skilled modified and to give them other skills. So I snatched that and I'm here doing, doing this now. This is the most satisfying job, uh, one of the most satisfying jobs I've ever had, to see uh, what's done and you're taking part of it and the grain going into the bunkers at the silos and then the grain going back out down to Geelong. Where's it going? It's just you're adding to, uh, to Australia's um, exports. Hi, my name's Ian Bennett and I'm from Canberra. What's prompted you to come and drive a truck to help with the grain harvest? Well, I've always had a fascination with machinery and when I got out of the army about 22 years ago I sort of fell into the IT trade and, and all the job advertisements I saw through the years all wanted experience, you know, experienced headers, chasing and drivers experience and I, because I don't have much experience in the truck driving game so then when Grain Harvest Assist came up, I was on the course at Longrenong and from a chaser bin job I did last year I spent that money on getting a licence upgrade to multi-combination What's a typical day looking like for you while you're here in Oyen? Uh, it depends a lot on weather, obviously, how the grain's coming off. Uh, most of the time we're just doing runs either out of the chaser bin or the field bins um, when us trucks can't keep up. And uh, probably three, maybe four loads a day. I mean, well, providing we're um, uh, not fatigued, we'll go until the silos close. But, no, it's good. I like it. It's fabulous. You've just taken me from the farm to the receival site. And while I've been in the cab with you, I've noticed that there's a picture of a crab and number 33 on the windscreen. What's that all about? Oh, I'm a, um, I joined the Army in 1978 as an apprentice, uh, electronics technician. And then from there I went to Royal Australian Corps of Signals. And the crab is a symbol from uh, apprentices school. And, uh, and in the middle of the body you always put your intake number in there and just people immediately know what it is. <laughs> The work that you're doing with Operation Grain Harvest Assist, do you envisage wanting to continue doing this 
in the years to come? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm loving it. I like, I like working for family farms. The job I did last year was for a, a contract harvester. And, I'm much, and you're moving around all the time. And I, I think I much prefer uh, being in one place for longer, getting to actually know the people you're working for. Ian Hastings said it where you get a, a virtual hug every time you wander down the street. You know, people say hello and they give you a wave and, and all that sort of thing. It's a really, really nice atmosphere. I like it. Retired Oyun farmer and veteran Ian Hastings says he's very supportive of the initiative. Harvest is always a difficult time to find people with the right skills. And in the past, my son Michael has driven our big B-double because it's always hard to find someone on a short-term basis to drive a B-double. And, and I've always been really concerned about that because I think he needs to be in the paddock. He's, he's the one doing the planning and running the farm, so he needs, needs to see what's happening in the paddock. And so it was really important to try and find someone capable of driving the B-double so that Mick could stay home on the farm. So that, that was one of the things. And um, the last two or three years, we've had various people drive the other truck. And now Mark's got that gig this year and he's doing it well. I know that you were involved in the training that was held as part of Operation Grain Harvest Assist at Longrenong. And it's the first time that's been run. How helpful is that in terms of making sure that the participants in that program have the skills they need to be safe and as productive as possible? We were just absolutely gobsmacked that we had 18 people apply this time and some of them were as as higher ranking ex-service people as colonels and uh, when we got to meet the 18 people and Ian who is standing here with us is one of those um, they were just people who had finished their time in the ADF. They'd, um, to an extent, rattled around in Civvy Street and not really found something that they wanted and they didn't want full-time work, a lot of them. So this really appealed part-time and from the farming perspective, we've got people who are trusted with very responsible jobs in the past. They're capable of listening to and, and doing what they're asked and they've got technical skills. So, I mean, from a from an agriculture perspective, we couldn't ask for anyone better. As retired Ian Farmer and veteran Ian Hastings ending that report about the 100x Defence Force personnel assisting with the grain harvest across Australia. Coming up, we'll take you to the Elliott Research Dairy in the Northwest. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators, and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Don't forget that text line 0438922936 if you've got any info for us or you just want to say good day. The federal government has announced it's committing to establishing a new environment protection agency to enforce laws designed to protect and restore nature and have the power to decide whether or not developments proceed. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek released the government's response to Graham Samuel's review of national environmental laws 
and revealed a new body would be formed to measure environmental impacts. The Minister says agriculture has been consulted on the change and believes the industry will be able to see some benefits. We've had great engagement with the National Farmers Federation uh, and uh, and, uh, other representatives of agricultural industries. We are absolutely determined that Australia will continue to be a wealthy and productive country that's exporting our goods uh, all around the world and, and that's what you know, that's what keeps us prosperous. I know farmers are some of the best environmental custodians in our country and I'm very hopeful that uh, not only will farmers um, welcome the detail of these proposals, which will give them certainty as well, um, but they will also be excited about the new opportunities of our nature repair market. Our nature repair market is a way for people Uh, in regional communities and rural areas to earn money from doing the environmental stewardship that they want to do in many cases, are desperate to do. This will apply for farmers, it will apply for First Nations, traditional owners. Um, This is a great new opportunity for for seeing investment in our regional and rural communities. That's the Federal Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, speaking in Canberra today. From Canberra now to Elliot in the northwest, and a shiny multi-million dollar research dairy finally has cows going through it as the facility gears up for a major research project into using technology on a working farm. At the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture's research farm at Elliot, the rotary milker is milking the cows, the feed is growing well on the miniature farms, and the team is gearing up to begin the cutting-edge research. Meg Powell popped up to the farm to see where things were up to. So I'm Adam Langworthy and I'm a research fellow with the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture and I'm researching how we can farm with less synthetic nitrogen fertilisers. Adam, you've been pretty busy lately getting ready some, some farmlets, they're called. What are farmlets? So farmlets are basically model farms. So we're setting up four different what you call model farms. Um, each of those has its own herd of cows allocated to it, um, has a number of paddocks And what we're doing is imposing different management levels on each of those farmlets and we're testing how they perform. So comparing one farmlet to another farmlet. So looking at how we can go and reduce our nitrogen fertiliser use, so going from a higher level down to a lower level, down to almost nothing, and then change the composition of the pastures in them. One of them's going to be more of a what we call a regenerative style which is quite a hot topic at the moment. Yeah, so I guess there's been a lot of interest in these more mixed pastures where there's a lot of different species and our mixed pastures go have about nine or so species in it. Um, and it's also moving really far away from that synthetic nitrogen input, so urea, sulphur, ammonia, those sort of products, and moving more to relying on the legumes. So legumes can bring in nitrogen to the system um, and potentially some other different what we call organic amendments. So we could potentially look at you know things like composts, etc., um, so yeah, we look at that, there's obviously a lot of excitement about that um, and we're really keen to see how that stacks up against a more conventional system. Are you expecting any certain results? Um, I guess we're going into it um, pretty open-minded to be honest. Um, there's not a whole heap of research on a system level how these really diverse pastures perform. It's a, it's a system that a lot of farmers already use and swear by and others are a bit more suspicious of. What are you going to do with all this data? So I guess um, we're going to be, as we go along, we're actually going to be releasing reports um, regularly on the performance of the different farmlets so that farmers can be tracking as it goes and they can be learning by our 
I guess, mistakes and our successes, and then they can take that home to their own farm. And then as the project um, concludes, we'll be doing things like financial assessments on all the farmlets. Um, we'll obviously be publishing the results and presenting them out to industry across southeastern Australia. So really making sure that data gets out into the farmer's hand where it belongs so they can use it to inform their decisions going forward. And I guess the beauty of this one is, although you'll be selling the milk, it's not about selling the milk in the end. It's working out what what's going to work. Yeah, that's right. So it's not just about, you know, necessarily about um, maximising milk production. It's about having profitable, sustainable milk production, the profitability of the whole system, etc. I'm James Hills from the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture. Um, so I lead the, the centre and involved in, in the research and development work here. So we're standing in front of a rather large rotary dairy at the moment, which is looking much dirtier than last time I was here. What's happened? Yeah, so we, when we had it opened it was certainly nice and clean and shiny Um, but we're excited to be in production now and actually milking our cows Um, so a lot has happened I think the focus in the last little while has been obviously adjusting our animals to a rotary because we used to be on a herringbone Um, so training the animals getting them familiar with this system Um, also because we collect a lot of data uh, through this system for our research purposes it's been really a focus on um, calibrating and making sure all those systems are operating effectively so that we can then start to confidently collect our data for our research. The way that this works is you're getting cows that are in separate farmlets, they're called. We're running um, five herds um, as part of our work over the next three or four years. Um, Four of those herds will be part of our farmlet trial and then the other will be the main part of the, the rest of the herd. You're training not only the cows to use this system but some students as well? So this has been set up to enable us to yep, do, do training and, and that training is in various forms. Um, certainly we've got a number of apprentices now coming through our system so that they can learn um, know how to operate a, a, an efficient uh, modern dairy but also how to, how to interact with research. But we also have others from industry coming in here to, to train and we're certainly looking at connecting with um, TASTAFE and others to be able to provide facilities for, um, for various... Um, training opportunities. Just today we've learned again that milk production is down for another for another season and it seems that's a combination of weather and people leaving the industry. Is there much appetite among young people to get into dairy are you seeing? I think there is definitely an indication that this is starting to happen. Certainly we have had challenges in the past but I think as we've moved to a higher Um, level of technology within our systems and looking at the fact that it's not just about putting cups on no as we automate the systems and so forth I think we're seeing more interest we certainly I know I'm involved in the school level of things as well and we're certainly seeing more people interested in agricultural subjects within school and there's a big effort to to improve that so that as we have people early on engaged they then stay uh, within the industry Um, so I think while we have seen a reduction in milk uh, volume across Australia as a whole we've held reasonably steady here in Tassie um, and there are some challenges um, because of certain people perhaps leaving the industry but not so much that there's there's also other other farming opportunities and beef is a big one because beef prices are high and so people might want to might, might want to to do that but certainly with the technology and the industry I think you know, quite strong here in Tasmania in a pasture-based system, I think that there is positive um, opportunities for the future. So is, is technology a way perhaps that could entice more people into dairy? Yeah, technology certainly one. Looking at the ways in which we operate as a system, so looking at 
more flexibility in terms of our milking so that we're actually not just uh, real early mornings, uh, late nights, long days. Um, so looking at um, different options for milking once a day or you know, uh, various other uh, combinations of milking that means that you're not having to do those early starts um, a lot more flexibility in our operations so we're actually looking at some of these opportunities as well so that it becomes more uh, friendly in terms of the um, the employment james hills and also adam langworthy talking there to meg powell at the tia research dairy at elliott in tasmania's northwest it's worth more than seven million dollars the dairy funded by the state government and also utas Coming up, a timber coop in the Huon Valley will be examined after claims there are giant trees which could be felled and we'll check the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersex announced a plan to overhaul the country's environment laws, saying urgent actions needed to take a nature-positive approach. The government's warning that the environment's deteriorating and isn't resilient enough to withstand current threats. Tasmania's Minister for Skills and Training, Felix Ellis, insists there'll be enough teachers for thousands of new training places. A $23 million agreement between the state and federal governments will see almost 4,000 fee-free TAFE and vocational education training places next year to try to tackle one of Tasmania's biggest challenges, a lack of skilled workers. South Australia's Premier says the proposed merging of the Universities of Adelaide and South Australia will future-proof that state's higher education system. The universities have signed an historic merger agreement which will see the new institution become the biggest university in the country and more than a thousand union employees at the New York Times will walk out for one day tomorrow after failing to negotiate a complete and equitable contract with the US news publisher. The walkout marks the first time employees have participated in a work stoppage since the late 1970s. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Belinda House joins us from the Bureau. Hello Belinda. Good afternoon. Uh, is there a bit of rainfall about? Yeah, look, we saw uh, showers really right across the state in the 24 hours to 9am, but the heavier falls were in the south with it petering out quite substantially by the time you got to the north coast. So the 24 hours to 9am, the highest was 55mm at Razorback, which is in the far south of the state. Scotts Peak picked up 31mm, Hearts Mountain 28mm and Lake Margaret in the west there 20mm. Since 9am this morning, the falls have been more likely about the the west and the south. The highest we've had is 8mm at Mount Reed and both Cape Bruni and Tasman Island have picked up 3mm. So as we go through the day it's uh, likely to see the showers continuing about the western, southern and central areas and perhaps about the, the far northeast as well but it will be a fine elsewhere so primarily fine across the uh, central north. We have a little bit of snow in the far south probably down to around about the 800 metre mark but that is uh, rapidly rising as we move into the afternoon. But it's really cool day with those fresh and gusty southwest to southerly winds to continue uh, easing this evening. Now rainfall yet to come today, really only looking at another one to three millimetres through the west-south central areas and into the northeast as well. Then on, then on Friday, reflecting fine conditions across the central north. Light showers elsewhere, but they will um, mostly clear by evening. Um, winds will be southwest to southeasterly, fresh about the east at first, and we'll see some uh, sea breezes about the northern coasts in the afternoon. Then on Saturday, a mainly, mainly fine day. You couldn't rule out the chance of a shower here or there, but uh, not much in the gauge if you do. Light winds initially. We're going to see those turn around to the northeast later in the day and freshen about the northwest. Then on Sunday, 
Sunday, though, showers will redevelop about the northwest of the state and extend statewide during the morning or afternoon. To fresh start, northeasterly winds will tend north to northwesterly in the evening on Sunday. Then on Monday, statewide showers are more frequent about the west and the far south as we see fresh northwesterly winds shift fresh to strong and gusty west to southwesterly. Will there be much in those showers on Monday? Yeah, look, four-day four day rainfall rainfall totals through to Monday, so that's uh, anything we might see in the gauge Friday and Saturday as well, and then Sunday as well. So 20 to 40 millimetres about the west and far south, 10 to 20 millimetres about elevated parts in the northeast, but elsewhere we're looking 2 to 10 millimetres, so some places won't see much at all. But, uh, yeah, the, the usual distribution of more into the west and far south. Where is summer? <laughs> it's not here today. <laughs> Uh, warnings, what have we got? Yeah, look, we've just got uh, marine warnings for the rest of today and tomorrow. We've got a gale warning for the eastern coastal waters from the northern tip of Flinders Island to Tasman Island for those south to southwesterly winds with strong winds for remaining coastal waters, and that includes the southeast inshore waters. Looking at our uh, wave rider boys at present, Mariah Island, it's, it's sitting up around about ooh, two and a half metres, maximum height of four metres coming in from the south-southwest other side of the island, uh, Cape Sorrel there. It's sitting up around about five metres with a maximum height of seven metres coming in from the, the, the southwest, west-southwest perhaps. So as we turn to our uh, coastal waters forecast for us for today, um, generally southwest to southerly winds at 20 to 30 knots, although up to 35 knots in the east. Winds are expected to ease back to 15 to 25 knots about the west during the afternoon and across the north and south in the evenings. The seas generally two to three metres, although a little higher in the east. With that uh, swell across the western and southern coast, that southwesterly three and a half to four and a half metres north north coast, westerly to one metre, and in the east that south to southwesterly swell of two to three metres. Thank you, Belinda. Thank you. No worries. Belinda House from the Bureau with the latest information for you. As the Giving Tree total inches up closer and closer to our target of $150,000, don't forget if you've got some uh, spare cash, the ABC Giving Tree online, and uh, you can donate very easily there. So go to it and we shall reach our target by uh, by uh, hopefully the end of the program, but maybe not, maybe, maybe, we don't know, <laughs> unless you... Uh, you decide to uh, to do that, which would be great. Make some people very happy uh, this Christmas. Now, coming up, we'll talk about the giant trees. ABC Tasmania Gives. Help give joy to Tasmanians in need. ABC Gives and the Giving Tree are helping Tasmanians through tough times. Whenever our neighbours are struggling, we each reach out to provide a helping hand. Together, we can help each other give when times are tough. This is our story. Donate now. Visit abc.net.au forward slash giving tree. Coast to Coast. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. In a few minutes, we'll talk about moving closer to using seaweed to make environmentally friendly animal feed. But a timber coop in the Huon Valley, which is due to be logged next year, will be examined after claims there are giant trees which could be felled. The CEO of Sustainable Timber Tasmania, Steve Whiteley, has told a state parliamentary committee the organisation has a firm policy on protecting the giant trees and has also added large trees to the protection list. They are protected. Having said that, uh, some giant trees were lost in the fires in the south, unfortunately. So, so sometimes there's a misconception about 
uh, reservation, you know, versus management of risk. So clearly we seek to protect giant trees unequivocally. Unfortunately, in some circumstances, like an extensive wildfire, some of those are damaged and lost. We've got a policy that's been in place. It was developed 15, 20 years ago now. It's um, been consistently adopted from that time. Technology's improved, so, you know, that, that has assisted us. So LIDAR has um, made a huge difference into preemptively going out and helping people verify giant trees. Uh, we do that through our processes. There's a, a number of enthusiasts that um, equally do that, and we really value their contribution in identifying specific trees and their location. So, so yeah, no, that's okay. But what what we're trying to determine here um, is what the if there are contractual requirements on STT contractors uh, to undertake identification for giant trees, um, or if they come across a giant tree that STT has yet to identify, are they free to log it with no obligation to assess it? So we're just trying to understand the mechanics of the policy um, and the obligations that that does or doesn't place on FT staff or contractors. No, so again, unequiv unequivocally, um, we wish to identify, protect giant trees through any and every means possible. Um, we seek to do that well before a forest practices plan is approved to the extent that something failed in the system, uh, which I think is very unlikely because of the high level of interest. The other thing that we are now including in forest practices plans generally is identification of large trees. These are 2.5 metre in diameter. So I think there are fail-safes there in terms of the, the question you've asked about giant trees. Partly, partly technology, partly general interest, partly awareness of all concerned about uh, the inherent value of giant trees and our, our policy, strong desire, wish to protect every one of them. So we understand, Mr Whiteley, that a representative of the Tree Project has contacted FT five times about the giant trees found in DN007B, so that's the Grove of Giants, and hasn't had a response. Um, is it true that FT hasn't responded to the tree project about um, the giant trees found in this coop, which is in the Huon Valley's Grove of Giants? As far as I'm aware, specifically the tree project is well known to us, a registered stakeholder, we understand what the interests are, and I think we've communicated with them at with multiple levels, directly and indirectly. Um, so our understanding is that um, the tree project scientists have been in touch with FT and five times about these forests, which are um, slated for logging, I think, in 2023. Just to be quite specific, we've received quite a number of, um, quite a bit of information from this group and we've acknowledged receipt of that information. We actually have um, a number of our officers meeting with um, both uh, Jennifer Sanger and Steve Pearce yeah. with a proposed meeting date of the 13th of December. So that's to okay. further that engagement around those particular trees. Um, in terms of that particular coop and that particular locality, we've taken on board the information that we've received and we're looking to go out and assess those trees against our policy, in which case, if they are giant trees, we'll put in place the management actions as per the policy. Suzette Weeding from Sustainable Timber Tasmania on the giant trees, which may be in a Huon Valley coop set for logging there next year. We also heard from the CEO of STT, Steve Whiteley, and the Greens leader, Cassie O'Connor. At the committee hearing, the State Resources Minister, Felix Ellis, outlined plans Sustainable Timber Tasmania has for this year's bushfire season and the work done in the latest season. 
Last financial year, STT contributed 8,300 hours of firefighting activities while attending 25 bushfires uh, across Tasmania. Uh, that's part of the active landscape management which we've been speaking about today. They also provided assistance in 18 fuel reduction burns completed by other agencies and completed eight fuel reduction burns on almost 5,500 hectares of PTPZ land. Uh, for the upcoming bushfire season, STT has maintained and increased the capability that was deployed during the 2020-21 bushfire season. This includes 130 of its 162 staff who were trained and ready for deployment for firefighting control. Uh, this year, STT increased its firefighting fleet with the addition of two medium-sized tankers and two large fire trucks. They have 18 dedicated fire trucks, 14 dedicated fire tankers and 92 slip-on tankers. So uh, some significant capability brought to bear um, on ahead of this fire season. And I've been out and about and seen what they've done. It's amazing work and the amount of training uh, and work that they have to put in uh, to be out in the field uh, doing that work. It's impressive. Fire refresher days were completed in September uh, and strategic and tactical fire management plans have been updated alongside the statewide fire action plan. They have more than 100 contractors who are trained as well, ready for deployment in firefighting control uh, and management operations. Uh, and I want to put on record, again, my thanks to those contractors uh, for their support of the Tasmanian community. With regard to production forest, uh, there is a vast array, not only of production forest, uh, but of environmental, natural, social and other values that need to be protected, uh, not to mention people's lives and livestock as well in agricultural spaces. The Tasmanian Resources Minister Felix Ellis on the plans STT has for this year's bushfire season. A couple of texts uh, to us. Louise from Bridport. G'day, Louise. Hello. You just mentioned Harvest Trail. Is this the go-to for backpackers wanting jobs? If not, can you suggest which website? Yeah, you can go to the Harvest Trail. There's information on there, and there's also uh, jobs around the country, including Tasmania. Uh, Fruit Growers Tasmania website's another good go-to page as well, Louise. Thanks for that text, 0438922936. Uh, Roger says, I work for a small tin mine at Razorback in the 80s. Mentioned Razorback in the weather forecast. Also known for crocoite, I think it is. Great job. Thanks for that, Roger. And uh, Jen from Mount Nelson says, off to the Grove of Giants on Sunday with 40 tree climbers and lovers. Really excited to hug a giant tree. Give the tree a hug for me too, Jen, uh, from Mount Nelson. Uh, That sounds like a good thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, hope you enjoy. Uh, coming up, we'll talk about asparagopsis. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
Well, a South Australian aquaculture company says it's moving closer to using seaweed to make environmentally friendly animal feed. Air Shellfish has been experimenting with growing seaweed to produce a chemical which can be used as an additive in livestock food to reduce methane emissions and fight climate change. General Manager Alan Bryant says now it plans to grow the seaweed on the land rather than trying to harvest it from the sea. We've had some fairly interesting breakthroughs recently. We started this journey thinking about doing growing this, the seaweed, the asparagopsis, on the water. And through the breakthroughs we've had, we're now starting to look to grow it nearly exclusively a land base, that is in dams and raceways. Raceways like the one we're standing on at the moment, I guess. That's right. It's a concrete concrete structure where we'll you can have moving water seaweed needs moving water as do oysters and these will be modified we'll have fiberglass raceways in between these structures as well uh, because we're testing a lot of things seaweeds asparagopsis is a new product and we're going through the science of proving it and proving how to grow it and how to concentrate bromoform the chemical we're looking for why have you decided then to go to the, this more controlled environment of growing asparagopsis on land when, it, I mean, I suppose I've been told it flourishes around here at Cow. It's prolific out in the harbour. But what you have in a wild environment is that you will get great growth in areas. You'll get a plant that's a metre away from another plant and one will have great concentration of bromoform, the chemical we're after, and the other plant will have none. You introduce a random event by having it concentrated in the ocean where you've got more control over the product then the scientific breakthroughs we've had in growth and concentrations you can you have a better chance to control the outcomes. So given what you've um, seen so far and how much bromoform how much of this chemical you can get from the lots you're testing at the moment how confident are you that you're going to have a commercial quantity available in a few years? Oh, We're very confident. We've done our examples. We've learned how to enhance the levels of bromoform on land in our test hatchery environment. We're seeing great growth, so we're very comfortable with the course we're taking. So to, for those who aren't really familiar, what is bromoform and why is this something that I suppose the world is really looking for at the moment? It's about methane. Methane um, is worse than carbon in the atmosphere for its destructive capabilities. Cows, ruminants, not just cows, ruminants, um, sheep, cows, they have, they in their digestive process, they emit methane and bromoform, found in asparagopsis, actually eliminates it. And so you're, the cows become methane emitted, free, and um, as a result of that, the actually the ruminant grows up to 20% bigger. And what's the uh, I suppose, idea of how this product will be used? Will we feed cattle uh, seaweed in, in, the, uh, in the paddock in the, when they're in the feed lot? Is there just going to be a chemical additive that we can add to stock feed? How is this actually going to look like when, um, when uh, it, if it does get commercial? We've already perfected the science of extracting the bromoform. You don't, we're not going to feed seaweed to cows. You have a very clean process to extract the bromoform out of the seaweed. And then um, that is, there is a process which is then added to cattle food, sheep food. And that's, that's how they get the necessary amount into their bodies. Now, when are you looking to actually have a commercial product of uh, bromoform? We, we would expect by 2025 is when we will have 
all our commercial quantities going and commercial quantities for us means all these raceways you're seeing here full and behind us we've got 35 hectares of vacant land and you'll find those dams dams or tanks uh, the whole site will be producing seaweed spores on land. And when we're looking at how much of this product you're able to make how much when you first go commercial I know it's a few years away but can you give us me an idea how much are we actually looking at the best way to do this is these raceways and those dams that are full there uh, you're seeing the dams say that's 15 million litres we should be able to cater for 700 to a million cows sheep a year when we have the rest of the site functioning there'll be more now you've got to realize this is a global product This isn't a product that's going to be just exclusively Australia. There's demand screaming out for this product, Europe, the US, South America, uh, Canada. So there was no shortage of market opportunities for this opportunity. Of course, there are um, other people who are investigating uh, using uh, these sort of technologies in um, animal feed. Uh, Is there any chance you might be beaten to the mark in, in some aspects or haven't already been? It doesn't really matter. We're, we're running our own race. We, we've already raised all the capital and have our shareholders in place for what we need going forward. I congratulate anyone who's in this space because the market is so big. If everyone did what they said they'd do, there's still not going to be enough. So welcome all in sundry. Come, come and do it. Yes, Air Shellfish General Manager Alan Bryant speaking with Lucas Forbes about growing the seaweed asparagopsis on land in uh, in dams. Uh, Texter Joy says, rain large trees, it's the understory the trees make that is the magic to experience. If these forests are cut down, all that is lost. Can't happen. Just stop, please. Thank you for that, Joy. 0438 936, that text line number. Finally today, not all meat chickens are raised in big barns. Mick and Kylie Carr are having trouble keeping up with demand for their pasture-raised chooks. To keep them safe from predators, they live in mobile sheds with no bottom that are moved every day to give the birds access to fresh grass. Jennifer Nichols went to Amamore in the Gympie region to find out more. So how old are these chickens, Mick Uh These chickens are five weeks today, actually. So we get them as day-old chickens and then they go into a brooder for roughly um, three weeks. Uh, and once they get their feathers, then we put them out here in the mobile sheds and um, then slide them down the hill every day onto fresh pasture. And so you've got a very different model to the big barns that the majority of meat chickens would live in. Yeah, most definitely. Like Once they come out of the brooder, they're on grass their entire life. We basically house them in these um, sheds just to give them protection from the predators, mainly hawks and wild dogs. But as you can see, there's no floor in the shed, so they've got access to the grass and the bugs, and I think they like to scratch. And so they have a, a wonderful life. I was quite surprised to hear that when the Australian Chicken Meat Association went out and surveyed people, that most people still thought that meat chickens were being fed hormones. Does that surprise you? Yeah, I think it's just a, a lack of awareness. Like We don't feed any of our animals hormones or antibiotics at all. So these chickens just get a, a grain diet and obviously the grass and, and whatever bugs they can forage. And they grow to... Basically, they come back at around a two kilo bird after six weeks. So they grow extremely fast. And that's just on grass and bugs and, and a grain ration. 
You've got some geese making some noise in there yeah. too. <laughs> Bit of a mixed bunch in this shed. It is a very mixed bunch. Uh, the geese aren't very good mothers, so we take the goslings off them and put them in with the chickens, just until they get a bit of size. Where do you get your chickens from and what goes into breeding these meat chickens? So these are a Cornish cross, which is just the general meat chicken that everyone uses. So we get them from a hatchery. I suppose one of the challenges that you have with trying to do this type of food production is actually getting access to infrastructure, like hatcheries and and abattoirs and that sort of thing. So these chickens come from down at Grantham, and that's where we get our day-olds from. They send them up on couriers, so we just pick them up in Gympie from the courier, and every fortnight we get about 125 chickens a fortnight. The system works quite well. So they don't have as much feather cover as the chooks that you keep for their egg-laying abilities. Why is that? Well, these chickens are only five weeks old, so when we first get them, they've got like a, a down on them, and then while they're in the brooder, they start getting their feathers, and after about three weeks, we bring them out here in the pasture, but they're still getting their feathers. It takes about um, five to six weeks before they're fully feathered. And yeah. they're not real active. They're, no, they're, they're not. lying down a lot and then just waddling and, and pecking at some things as they go. Yeah, they're certainly not like an egg-laying chicken that's very active. All they basically do is eat and drink and, and take it easy. And that's the challenge. They do grow very fast, and because they aren't very active, they are very susceptible to predators, and that's why we use this type of shed, just to keep them protected. It's really interesting because when I was talking to the association, they were saying that, you know, you couldn't get to take a photo of any of the chickens in the sheds because of biosecurity, that they don't allow anybody in without washing their boots and all that sort of thing. I suppose there'd be advantages and disadvantages of free-ranging chickens in that wild birds could visit, but you haven't got the same number of chickens in together, so that reduces the risk of disease. Yeah, exactly. Like Here we have pretty low pressure on the animals, like where they have big sheds where they could have 10,000 chickens in it. There's a lot of pressure on disease because you have so many birds together within an area. Where here, basically in the shed, we've got 125 chickens. Outdoors, plenty of grass, plenty of sunshine, so there's just not the potential for disease. And have you had much of a problem with disease over the years? How many years have you been doing this? Uh, we've been doing the meat chickens here now for probably four years, nearly five years. Um, because we move the chickens every day, so they're always on fresh grass, yeah, we have no problems at all. And basically the chickens are performing a service for us because they fertilise the pasture. Uh, we come through and then graze this pasture with the cattle through the year. So it improves the quality of the grass. Oh, it's jumping out of the ground at the moment. Oh, with the sun and the, um, and the bit of heat. But yeah, it's a system that works really well because there's no smell because all the manure just goes straight into the, onto the grass. It doesn't burn the grass and it fertilises it. So we haven't put any synthetic fertiliser on this pasture at all. It's all done with the chickens. I think one of the challenges, like we can sell every chicken that we produce. We're, we're basically out of stock. So we do 125 a fortnight and we can't keep up to demand at the moment. We could go bigger, but I suppose that's balancing it with our other farming operations. But basically it's getting to know where your food comes from, talk to a farmer, understand how they farm, asking your butcher or your wholesaler the sort of food that you want to eat, 
talking to them, having a conversation. And quite often, because we just started going to the farmers markets, we've got a, a number of egg customers that we wholesale through. And through customer demand, where the customers actually have gone to them and said, can you stock Bunyan Grove chickens? They've then stocked our chickens. So it's, it's led by the customer, which is the best way. And it's all about trying to keep the food local. We sell 90% of our produce on the Sunshine Coast. Chicken farmer Mick Carr talking there to Jennifer Nichols, ending the country out for today. Uh, giving trees sneaking up uh, just under $148,000, getting close to the $150,000 mark. Well done. Fantastic. Meg Powell will be uh, presenting the country out for you tomorrow after midday.